Our text this morning is Psalm 23. And Psalm 23, of course, is one of the most, if not the most famous and beloved of all the Psalms. In fact, it's one of the most well-known and treasured passages of Scripture, uh, which makes the text particularly hard to hear in a fresh way. Uh, And we need the Spirit's presence and gift to open our ears to sort of remove the romanticism that tends to be associated with a text like this. It's not hard, if you take a look at Psalm 23, to see why the text has such a universal appeal. It it has a deep simplicity and beauty. It's brief. It's powerful. It's direct. It's a song of serene confidence and trust in the Lord. And yet we find, if we look at it, that the peace that's there is not escape. That the contentment in Psalm 23 is not complacency. This is not a Hallmark card. Nothing's airbrushed out of this psalm. The psalm contemplates real evil, deep darkness, death, and real-life enemies. These grim realities are present. They're acknowledged. They're given their full place. But they are not feared. Confidence in God, in His provision, His reality, His protection, this gives the psalmist an orientation in which to live without fear. So we'll make three points. Three points, all of which follow from the Lord being our shepherd. Contentment, courage, and communion. The three points are contentment, courage, and communion. So, the psalm begins, The Lord is my shepherd. Now, perhaps to hear this better in our day, we would translate it, the Lord is my pastor. The great God of Israel, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the one with all life and light and glory and fullness of perfection in his own being, the one who upholds all things. The one who knit you together in your mother's womb and has sustained you to this instant. Who has given you breath. Who has provided redemption. Who will heal the cosmos and restore all things. That God is your pastor. There's a lot of things that can be said about God, right? He's creator. He's judge. He's redeemer. But he's your pastor. That's perhaps the best thing that can be said about God. He's the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Everyone has a pastor in whom they can find no defects because everyone needs a pastor like that. And behind this imagery, of course, 
are the scenes in John's gospel where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Jesus is evoking Psalm 23. He is the one who has come as the God of Israel to live and to die for the flock. So it's in Jesus Christ that the Lord is your pastor. We should not overlook this remarkable little pronoun. This remarkable little pronoun, my, my. The Lord God, the shepherd king, is also my shepherd. And so it's an image of great intimacy and tenderness. We saw this when we looked at the passages on the Good Shepherd in John 10. God, God does not just shepherd the flock as a faceless mass. He doesn't have a one-size-fits-all strategy. He doesn't say, you know, I think we can regularize this and normalize it, make my life easier. He shepherds each of us with personal love and concern, that God. The Lord is my shepherd. And this simple beginning, but really exalted declaration, the Lord is my shepherd, it leads to the conclusion in verse 1, I lack nothing or I shall not want. This is the first fruit of laying hold of the fact that the Lord God Almighty is your pastor. The first fruit is contentment. Contentment means I shall not want. Now, this is a little tricky. This doesn't mean, of course, that God will satisfy our every wandering desire and that we'll have no wants unfulfilled. God is not an errand boy. It doesn't mean that we'll live without striving or heartache. The psalm does not contemplate that. It doesn't mean contentment is not some Zen-like state of repose at least not in the Christian vision. We are creatures of desire, creatures of longing, creatures of hope, creatures oriented toward the future because we're meant to be bent and to yearn for the kingdom. Our problem is not desire or yearning or longing or future orientation. Our prior is disordered Desires. That's what our problem is. Our desires are disordered. Our longings are twisted. We want the wrong kingdom. And therein lies all the, the strife in our life. I shall not want means my desires are going to be ordered aright to the right things. It doesn't mean that life is going to be free from turbulence. It means that because the Lord, the everlasting God, is my pastor, I shall not lack whatever is needful for my true well-being. In other words, this pastor is going to go after your disordered longings, 
your disordered desires and he's going to try and heal and rectify and restore them and reorder them and that's going to be turbulent. But we lack nothing that's needful. In every way, every way this shepherd meets our needs. This is great news. This, he never mishandles a sheep. He never ignores us. He's never inattentive or distracted. He never slumbers or sleeps. He doesn't run out of bandwidth. You know, Moses says in, in the book of Deuteronomy of Israel, he tells them, you lacked nothing. You lacked nothing. You had no wants, no lack during your 40 years in the wilderness because the Lord had been with you. That's a good picture of what's going on here. I mean, Israel had plagues, drought, wars, extraordinary difficulties in that 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses says, you lacked nothing because the Lord was with you. I mean, if the Lord is your pastor, how could you lack anything? The reason this is so difficult for us is because we have humanistic, we have false notions of what it means to be content or to have no lack. But you lack nothing that's necessary for your genuine human flourishing, for the right ordering of desire and hope. Now, this picture of contentment does entail detachment from the spirit of covetousness, sure. From the need to consume, that does mark contentment. From grasping and from striving, from the desire to acquire. It does mean liberty from the restlessness that marks the age where people are constantly trying to establish their identity, their value, their dignity in some terms other than having the Lord as their pastor. So the Lord himself is your portion. And that means right now, here, today, in this moment, you lack nothing that you need. That's hard, because to us it doesn't seem that way. It's precisely in the deficiencies, though, in the apparent absence of provision, that the Lord shows himself to be the faithful shepherd. It's in the, it's in the depth of our vulnerability, of our corruption, that we are being Tended to by this pastor. And growing into this contentment, it's, it's not automatic. It doesn't come overnight. The Lord has to shepherd you into this, this frame of contentment. And the first thing he does, the text says, is he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This is what God does for Israel and for the church. Listen to these words from Ezekiel 34, 
famous passage. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. I shall feed them. And so what God promises to do for Israel, this psalm says he does for you. And so this this great pastoral longing of God for Israel is fulfilled finally, as we said, in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus basically says, I am the shepherd promised in Ezekiel. I'm the door. If you enter by me, you'll be saved. He says, you'll go in and out and find pasture. And this means God feeds the sheep. He takes the sheep. He makes them lie down in green pasture. He feeds them. Word, sacraments. These are the green pastures of your provision in Christ. The good shepherd. A lot of the time we have trouble because we're looking in the wrong places for the pasture and the provision. This pastor tells us, here's where I'll feed you. Here's where I'll make you lie down. In the green pastures of my word and my sacraments. And in addition, the text says we're led beside quiet or perhaps restful waters. The shepherd gives us rest. Who doesn't need rest? I'd say it's pretty desperately needed in our busy and frantic age. If the Lord is your shepherd, he's teaching you that your lives are not made meaningful by being filled with frenetic activity, by striving. Contented people rest. One of the great gifts of this pastor to your soul is this day, the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is a subversive, countercultural sign. It's a way of saying to the world, look, the economy and consumption and production are not God. And so we're made to lie down, take a nap, rest. So to summarize, the first thing the shepherd does to lead us into contentment, the first thing he does is he provides food, rest, and refreshment. Food, rest, and refreshment. So this is God's pastoral care that we're looking at. It's interesting. It's it's as if the Lord opened up his heart to us and said, here's how I pastor. And the next thing includes... Firm correction and retrieval. In verse 3, he says, he restores my soul. Now here we're beginning to get at what I earlier called the realism of this psalm. Shepherding in the real world is very grimy business. The text has no illusions. He restores my soul. And this, of course, means our souls need to be restored. They wander. They get weary. They get damaged. They get defiled. They are disordered. You know, each of us has failed at being our own pastor. No one is competent 
to be their own shepherd. So the Lord feeds us. He brings us rest so that he might restore our damaged souls. That's why he becomes flesh in Jesus Christ and bears that damage. For the sake of getting down into our disorder and healing us. And he leaves us the means of grace. Word and sacraments and prayer and worship. In these things, you're not only being fed and nourished and refreshed and given rest. These are the instruments for the restoration of mangled souls. This is what the Christian tradition has long called the care of souls. It's been replaced by the modern therapeutic state. But these are, if you will, the tools of a Christian psychology. A Christian thinking about the soul, the psyche. This is how God does therapy. Word, sacraments, worship, prayer. So the second thing the shepherd does to lead us into contentment is he restores our souls. Verse 3 says, He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Notice the shepherd goes ahead of the sheep in this image. This is why it costs God to shepherd us. It costs Jesus Christ to be your forerunner. He leads in these paths. We don't have a shepherd who's just sitting up on high saying, uh, here's some stuff, try this and you'll feel better. He goes in front. There's no place that you are called to go that he has not already visited. And, And notice also, when we speak of paths of righteousness, these are not our native paths. We have to be coaxed, to put it mildly, corrected, disciplined into this pathway and remaining in the pathway can be painful. And this means the shepherd has to do remedial work. Medicine for the soul that doesn't taste good. The right paths are paths of discipleship and they are the way of the cross. The third thing the Lord does to guide us into contentment then is he guides us in paths of righteousness. All of this, the text says, he does for his name's sake. God cares about his name, meaning his character, his glory, his renown, his fame, his reputation, if you will. Notice there is no competition whatsoever, none, between the glory of this God, his name and his renown, and your absolute well-being. God does not say, I have to glorify my name, therefore I have to degrade the creatures that I've made. He glorifies his name in giving you rest and refreshment and food and guidance and restoration. I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago. I am very fond of the quote from the great second century church father Irenaeus who said, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. That's contentment. 
That's a biblical picture of what contentment is. The, the 16th, 17th century Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said that contentment in the Christian life is the rare jewel. The rare jewel. So the second point is courage. Courage. And here the, the psalm's unblinking look at life becomes even more intense. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or in some translations, the darkest valley. Now the psalmist is not by any peaceful streams. Listen to one, uh, one scholar who's hiked some of the Holy Land describe, describes what a Palestinian shepherd might face. He says this, deep, rugged stream beds are cut through the semi-desert hills by the seasonal winter torrential rains. The air in the bottom is heavy with the rising heat of the day. The canyon depths are swathed in dark shadows and the rising cliff walls exclude the distant sun. There's no grass or water and the flock must struggle up the steep sides of the canyon to find its next feeding place. So at this point, the green pastures and the still waters and the hallmark version of Psalm 23 are gone. But that's the point. The Lord who shepherds us in green pastures and besides still waters must shepherd us in the deep, dark valleys of life. The place where we think, surely he's not tending to my needs here. And finally, in the shadow of death itself. Living in Christ takes courage. I think courage is one of the most underappreciated Christian virtues. How could it take anything less than courage? Jesus turns to his disciples on the way to Jerusalem and says, now if you want to follow me, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. After I'm killed, they're going to kill you too. If you can't handle that, then don't follow me. And he says a half a dozen things essentially identical to that. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids him to come and die. So, this is the final confrontation. This is the place where through the paths of righteousness, the good shepherd leads us. And no one gets to check out of that valley. Now here we see how necessary it is for us that Jesus himself is our shepherd. Because he alone has gone through the valley of death and come forth triumphant. We don't need another mortal at this point. Pure mortal. Mere mortal. All other guides turn back right here. As well-meaning as they may be, they have to leave you alone in this valley. I mean, they can hold your hand. They can watch and pray. They can weep. But they can't take you through the darkness into the light of God. Only Jesus, who suffered, died, and was buried, does not turn back. And in, in these dark valleys, 
in the valley of the shadow of death, the psalmist fears no evil. That is the definition of courage. I will fear no evil. I don't think this means there won't be a certain biochemical response of fear. It means I'll look evil in the face, I'll do the right thing in spite of any sort of you know, emotional uh, dread. Notice the text says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Precious in the sight of the Lord, Psalm 116 says, is the death of his holy ones. Because he particularly shepherds them there. Look carefully what's happened right here in the psalm. This is the climax of the psalm, structurally, poetically speaking. It's the darkest valley, and the psalmist, you'll notice this, the psalmist stops addressing his shepherd as he. He restores, he leads, he makes me lie down, and now he addresses the Lord directly as you. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And so the already intimate picture becomes intensely intimate in the valley of death. Not he shepherds me, but you shepherd me. It's this witness of God that banishes fear and that gives courage. It's the fact that the Lord, who is our shepherd, wades into the river with us. You know, here I think of many of the saints that we've had here at Westminster who've died in the faith and who've died in courage and passed into the presence of the Lord. That they, they all meant a great deal to me because when I was first coming under care and moving toward, many, toward ordination many years ago, they would tend to me. In fact, my debt not only to the living, but to the dead, is a, a, one of the main reasons that I took this call. I have a debt not only to this congregation, but a debt to those who shepherded me years ago. You know, in this context, I remember Blanche Sully. She wrote me a couple of notes in the early days of my ministry, which I still have, as prized possessions. And she would come out to encourage me when I was just beginning to preach in the Sunday evening service. And let me tell you, these were rough sermons. You think these present sermons are not good? You should listen to those. And then she would always spend time talking to me. In her final years, she would tell me, as I'm sure many of you remember, that she was ready to go and be with the Lord. That's, I can remember her telling me this repeatedly. And then she would say, you know, the Lord is with me all day long. I talk to him all day long. I just want to go to heaven and be with the Lord. She wanted to be with the Lord and with her husband. And she had, I remember this distinctly, she had no fear. The Lord was her shepherd. She had an almost otherworldly sense of calm about her and security, at least as I saw it from where I stood. And that's an image. And there are others that could be named here. 
But don't take this for granted because I've seen the reverse. I've seen people howl and scream, terrified, and die. This is not an automatic deal that you're going to walk serenely into death. It comes because people like Blanche and others have had lives where the Lord God is actually their shepherd. And so this security is reinforced in verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These are the Lord's tools. One defends against attack and the other comforts and disciplines and corrects. Only the Lord's tools bring this comfort. Only divine comfort can cast out fear and bring courage. Only divine comfort can cast out fear and bring courage. I mean, fear is not automatically cast out. Like contentment, courage is not automatic. You know, this, this mention of comfort, your rod and your staff, they come for me, it evokes that marvelous first question. I hope you all know it from the Heidelberg Catechism, which, by the way, we are studying on Sunday night if you would like to come out. Question one in the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What a, what a great question. And the answer begins that I, with body and soul, in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Psalm 23 in a nutshell. That God in Jesus Christ has undertaken the responsibility for your well-being. So finally, a third point here is communion. The scene shifts after the Lord shepherds through the valley. There's a victory banquet in the house of the Lord. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me. The shepherd now becomes the host. And this speaks to the psalmist's situation and to ours. It means that the shepherd gives him victory and communion even in the midst of his enemies. And this scene here is festive. Notice this. You anoint my head with oil. There's ointment for the party. Oil is given to make the, the face of man shine, Psalm 104 says. This is the oil of victory. The fresh oil that God pours out on his saints. And it tells us that it is possible for us in the midst of the vulnerabilities and the, th the troubles which assail us, as we sang this morning, to have joyful communion with God in the midst. And that this cup, the psalmist even says, overflows. We have a table. We have a cup. Eating and drinking is the very consummation of fellowship with God. So there's a, there's a feast going on in the middle of this darkness. In fact, this assembly this morning is a taste of that. That's exactly what this is. Our confession here is that we're lifted up, we're united to Christ, we're fellowshipping with the saints of all ages before the throne of God in the midst of every valley in every one of our lives. So again, the psalmist is not saying, you know, 
Try and be happy. He's saying, look, I know about the darkness. And I know about the valley. And I know where it all ends. But there's a table spread out here. There's a table in the midst of this darkness for you. You know, that might be a way of navigating through your situation. Right? Ask yourself, in the midst of this valley, where's the cup? And where's the table? Where's the pasture? The psalmist is sure that this current fellowship is going to lead to the future feasting in the house of God. History ends not in a valley, not in the darkness, not in death. It ends with a banquet. He's sure that that's where it's going. He asserts that goodness and mercy are going to follow him all the days of his life. You know, what's comforting here is the word follow means pursue. So goodness and mercy are going to chase after me or pursue me. And this means, again, that the shepherd's vigilant. He's vigorously pursuing you. And the psalm ends, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, if it hasn't been clear already, Psalm 23 is a deeply personal psalm, but it really is meant to drive us to public worship and to celebration with the people of God. It ends with dwelling in the house of God forever. The Lord who is my shepherd shepherds me in and with all of Israel. This is the place. This is the school of contentment. This is the place for the renewal of courage. This is the place to taste the communion which leads to the everlasting communion of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Here is where we get just a glimpse of that coming wedding supper where we will recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and everyone else who walk through the valley. All the redeemed. And there we will celebrate the glory and faithfulness of our shepherd. The Lord who is our pastor. Amen. Amen.